0: You'll remember in about 2009, the uh, Vatican under the leadership of Pope Benedict XVI, the most conservative Pope in my lifetime, uh, shocked everybody by convening the, uh, calling on the Pontifical Academy of Sciences to convene a five-day colloquium to discuss the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. And when I found out they were doing this, I could have fallen off my chair because it was only four centuries ago, the same institution was burning people alive for merely suggesting there might be intelligent life on other planets, let alone us being in contact with them, let alone the language they were using at the time, which was of embracing a brother or sister alien. And there were significant senior spokespeople for the Curia coming out and saying, that's exactly what we needed to do. And one of them, the senior astronomer for the Vatican Observatory, came out and said, we shouldn't be surprised to encounter extraterrestrial species because they're in the Bible, he said. They're in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when he said that, he was really throwing down a gauntlet to scholars, theologians all around the world to go back to the Bible and ask the question, Are there other entities referenced in these texts that today we would call ETs?
1: You're listening to ExoPolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. It's my great pleasure to welcome Paul Wallace to ExoPolitics today. He has a very interesting background. He was trained and ordained as an Anglican priest and worked in the Anglican Church, both in Britain and Australia for many decades, reached senior positions, archdeacon and church doctor. And in 2020, he had a remarkable transition. So I want to welcome you, Paul, to the show. And uh, yeah, just kind of walk us through what what happened. What was the thing that made you decide to move from a kind of more traditional theological career into looking at ancient contact with extraterrestrials in the Bible?
0: Well, good day, Michael. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Yes, it was a transition that would certainly have surprised a lot of people who'd read my previous books, which were all nice books about Christian spirituality and mysticism. And as you rightly say, that's where my career had been for 33 years in church-based ministry. I was a theological educator, training pastors. I was a church doctor, working as an intentional interim, a troubleshooter, archdeacon for the Anglican Church. And it all all sounds very uh, orthodox and mainstream. But uh, those who knew me well knew that uh, lurking in the back of my brain was some other questions, which had been sown way back when I was about 11 years old, when I read Eric Von Daniken's magnum opus, Chariots of the Gods. And I felt that he had accurately put his finger on some gaps in our abilities to explain ourselves as an intelligent, conscious species at the zenith of planet Earth. And as a young boy, I found that the religious answers to that question were a little Unsatisfying, and the scientific quest- answers to the questions had some gaps in it as well. So I felt there were some really legitimate questions about whether or not we're alone in the cosmos and whether or not human development had happened without any kind of external intervention. So these were questions in my mind from the time I was a boy. And then you'll remember in about 2009, the uh, Vatican under the leadership of Pope Benedict XVI, the most conservative Pope in my lifetime, uh, shocked everybody by convening the, uh, calling on the Pontifical Academy of Sciences to convene a five-day colloquium to discuss the theological implications of contact with other civilizations. And when I found out they were doing this, I could have fallen off my chair because it was only four centuries ago The same institution was burning people alive for merely suggesting there might be intelligent life on other planets, let alone us being in contact with them, let alone the language they were using at the time, which was of embracing a brother or sister alien. And there were significant senior spokespeople for the Curia coming out and saying that's exactly what we needed to do. And one of them, the senior astronomer for the Vatican Observatory, came out and said, we shouldn't be surprised to encounter extraterrestrial species because they're in the Bible, he said, they're in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when he said that, he was really throwing down a gauntlet to scholars, theologians all around the world to go back to the Bible and ask the question, are there other entities referenced in these texts that today we would call ETs? And for about a decade, I was sitting there knowing this gauntlet had been thrown down, interested to see how the other churches would respond to this challenge. And in the end, I felt I needed to respond to the challenge. I preached through the book of Genesis in a church I was working for in Victoria. And it was just so obvious to me preaching through it that there's this other layer of story that we preachers tend never to get to. The layer is obvious because of the anomalies in the stories we usually tell from out of the Bible. And I thought, I really have to give time to this to sit down, go through these anomalies, work on them. I discovered they were translation anomalies. And once I tackled them that way and got back to some root meanings of some key words that I realized the ET layer of the story in the Bible is from start to finish and it's only a translation away from being blindingly obvious. And for me, doing the translation work and realizing that the Bible was full of aliens was a bit like Neo taking the red pill in The Matrix. My whole world changed. I couldn't go back to seeing it the other way because the other way no longer made sense. And having made this journey into this taboo forbidden territory, I thought I have to share this journey as I always have as a writer. um, This information is too important not to share because it impacts not only our view of the cosmos, what company we think we're in, it affects our vision of God, what we think we're talking about there, and it affects our understanding of ourselves, who we think we are and what we think we are or are not capable of.
1: Yes, I remember that very well, that interview uh, Gabriel Finesse did, the senior right. astronomer for the Vatican, who, who talked about extraterrestrials being our brother and how, how that really did kind of spark just a kind of worldwide interest uh, in, in the Vatican being very interested in the question of extraterrestrial life and also saying that theologically that uh, they are extraterrestrials are spiritually or ethically more are likely to be more evolved than humanity um, which would make them kind of between humans and the angels which made them capable of being our brothers but they wouldn't have needed to have a manifestation of the Christ in their world which would have meant that Humanity was privileged because we were so decadent that Jesus needed to come and you know preach and be crucified and, 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 and give his message. Uh, but that kind of made us unique in the galaxy, which was a, a very interesting kind of theological approach to it all. Do you, do you want to elaborate well, on that? Well,
0: yes. I mean, Gabriel Funes took that line, uh, and then um, Reverend Dr. Guy Consolmagno took another line and indicating that there are actually some very interesting issues that are thrown up by suddenly realizing we're in a populated universe. But the main message that came out of the colloquium was there is no issue. Uh, There's no problem with suddenly recognizing a populated universe. It just means the creator has been busier than we thought. And the overall impression was that the Roman Catholic Church was wanting to get in there first before there was some other disclosure from another authority saying we are in contact. It gave the appearance that the church was wanting to say, there's nothing to see here. Don't you remember we talked about this and there's no problem. And then there was no further disclosure, but I felt that the whole exercise was done so that the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't be on the back foot If all of a sudden uh, the Chinese in their lunar mission started talking about people they were encountering or or some other authority suddenly leaked and the church didn't want to be on the back foot of people panicking around the world and saying, well, how does this fit with our theology? So that
1: whole kind of um, debate or issue kind of arose in the context of the Kepler space telescope confirming the existence of all these exoplanets that was kind of revolutionary in the scientific field. And it made mainstream scientists suddenly begin talking about extraterrestrial life as existing out there, almost certainly because the statistical odds were now in favour of some of these exoplanets being inhabited. And, you know, you had uh, Professor Stephen Hawking talking about extraterrestrials being more technologically advanced than if they come into our, you come to visit, then they could take us over. So so the Vatican statements by Funes and Concil Manio, they they were kind of like predicated on this idea that, well, you know, on these exoplanets somewhere out there, there's likely to be intelligent life and, you know, should we welcome them as our brothers or should they be treated as predatory species such as Hawking was saying. So that's kind of like, making a lot of assumptions about extraterrestrial life out there, but but you, you kind of approached this from a different perspective. You were saying, well, if now it's, a, well, I mean, you were looking at it from the perspective, well, there's references to extraterrestrial life in the Bible, in the Hebrew uh, scriptures. So, you know, that was looking within the body of the literature, which was very unique.
0: Well, that's right. I write on the subject of paleocontact really from my studies in ancient texts. So for 15 years I trained pastors in hermeneutics and that's the principles of interpreting ancient texts, trying to work out what the writer wanted you to get out of the texts and then what to do about that. And the tools that I would give to pastors were tools like source analysis where you ask, where did this text come from? Is it in the original form. If not, how does it differ from the original form? And if it differs, why does it differ? Or form criticism where you ask what kind of literature is this? Is the writer reporting something that he saw even though he didn't understand it? That's called apocalyptic literature. Or is it prophetic? Is it poetry? Is it prose? Is it history with interpretation? So on and so forth. And then the fundamental question always, what do the words mean? And it was applying those tools to some of these anomalies in the texts that revealed these other kinds of entity, which have in the past been translated as God. But when you go to the root meaning, you realize you're looking actually at a plurality of powerful or advanced beings. So when I began recognizing there's this plurality, there's this plural form to the words, and how come it gets singularized and turned into God in this text, or turned into demons in this text, or landlords in this text, or false gods in this text? What happens if we go back to the root meaning, which is powerful ones of one of the key words, or the most powerful one of the powerful ones is the meaning of another word, what happens if we just use those root meanings? And so in Escaping from Eden, my first book in Paleo Contact, I go through the exercise of rereading some of the key texts from out of Genesis using the root meanings. Now the stories change, of course, but they don't change in a random way. As soon as you use the root meanings, the stories flip around and they line up with a whole body of literature that comes from ancient Mesopotamia, from out of the ancient Sumerian, Babylonian, Assyrian, and Arcadian cultures. Their cultures have been uh, recorded for posterity in cuneiform texts on uh, baked clay tablets. And those texts, when we worked out how to translate them in the 1800s, it became clear very quickly, these were the root stories of the biblical stories. And so the stories of the powerful ones in the Bible, I could immediately see were the summary form of the cuneiform stories which are not about god they're about sky people or what you and i would call ets
1: well one example of that is uh, the repeated references to the elohim in the christian bible and in the hebrew equivalent and that you take is not being a reference to a single all powerful deity, which is how some people want to interpret that, but that you believe that or state, you know, looking at the different source literature that this is actually clearly a reference to a multiplicity of of beings, um, some of which are extraterrestrials.
0: That's absolutely correct. Uh, The word is a masculine plural form word. It takes plural form verbs, And then the storylines confirm that you're looking at a multiplicity of beings because there are conflicts among the Elohim, among the powerful ones. There are different agendas. They conflict over how many human beings there should be on the planet, how long they should live, what access to uh, medication, etc. that they should have. They conflict, they go to war. Thousands of human beings are slaughtered in the conflicts of the Elohim. This makes no sense if it's a singular entity. When you translate it as a singular entity, you have an entity that's double-minded, changes his mind, makes mistakes, fails to anticipate the kinds of things a child could anticipate. It it comes out as a nonsense and he does monstrous um, inhuman things The moment you re-pluralize it, you realize, no, this is actually the story of humanity caught in the crossfire of powerful entities who are trying to carve up Project Earth for hegemony, dominance over one another. There's this great competition going on among the Elohim. And it makes sense of other texts where you realize that the main Elohim of the story who takes the name Yahweh really is in competition with other powerful beings. And we're looking at a period of human history where human beings were governed by non-human powers. And many of the, uh, the traumas of that time in our deep past are recorded in the Bible, but also in the ancestral narratives of cultures all around the world. And it was the correlations that I found as I went around the world sitting at the feet of the elders of traditional cultures hearing world mythology and ancestral narrative repeating note after note these stories of governance by non-human entities and interference in our development as a species and it's the correlations and the parallels that really caught my attention and made me realize something was being recalled. This wasn't just a book that had gone around the world and been rewritten or an oral tradition that had gone around the world in Chinese whispers, many of the correlations indicated that our ancestors around the world saw the same things and heard the same things and experienced the same things. And they'd all found their ways of curating that memory in their own body of literature and oral tradition.
1: Now, in your book, Escape from Eden, you you refer to, studies and travels to many countries where you saw this same theme repeating itself of these ancient gods or extraterrestrials fighting over governorship of humanity so how did it begin was it was was there just one eden or were there multiple edens
0: oh that's a very good question i'm coming to the view that we're looking at a series of interventions in the development of Homo sapiens. So that's a series through history and maybe a series around the planet as well. Some correlations suggest that it's the same intervention that's being described and others suggest, no, there were stages in our development, a stage that took us from a a primate type creature to a creature that was smart enough to work as a working class for another species. And then there's another upgrade where we're smart enough now to farm and do animal husbandry and build cities and civilizations. And this is not a new idea. I'd read it for the first time when I was 11 in Eric von Daniken, but he wasn't the first person to suggest it. Plato, writing two and a half thousand years ago, said this was something he had concluded. And it was in the category of things he said, these are things I have concluded but cannot prove. And he put forward the idea that our ancestors were upgraded by ET visitors in order to be more conscious, more intelligent. And it's that that took us from living in animal subsistence on the planet's surface to being a technological species. So I do think we're looking at multiple interventions. I think there's more than one intervention that taught us how to farm. And those interventions certainly did happen all around the planet. I think the jury's out in terms of DNA research at this point as to whether we're looking at a single point of engineering or a multiple point of engineering. It's a very interesting and colourful story that's emerging in terms of Homo sapiens appearing and then a bottleneck and then reappearing. And just in the last few years, the number of our ancestors who were on the planet with us Different kinds of human being alongside we whom we existed and with whom we may have interbred. It's a far more plural picture now than when you and I were going through the school system when we were taught it was a simple linear story of Homo sapiens gradually getting smarter and smarter and smarter. And when I was at school, we were looking for the missing link that would explain the huge leap from private ancestors to who we are. Now we're looking at multiple missing links to explain the story.
1: It's a fascinating uh, issue because uh, I've come across multiple sources myself in my exopolitics politics research that talk about a number of extraterrestrial races intervening in humanity's development and evolution, and that there was genetic engineering involved. So that raises the question, so if you have multiple kind of like Edens then was it a a case of like one group of extraterrestrials wanting to sabotage another group of extraterrestrials, kind of Eden? Is that what the story of the snake in the garden is all about?
0: Well, the snake story is not really a sabotage. There is a sabotage you can find in the Bible, and that, that comes in Genesis 6, which is the first hybridization story. But the Genesis 3 story Uh, What we call the fall from out of um, the Bible's narrative isn't really a sabotage or a fall. It's a story of an upgrade, but it's a conflict among the powerful ones who are governing Project Earth at that time. And what we have in Genesis 3 is really a retelling of the Sumerian story of Enki and Enlil conflicting over how intelligent the human beings should be. Enlil is in charge of this region of space and Enki is in charge of project humanity. And though Enki is the junior, he is closer to the human beings who I believe at that point in the story have been cloned. They have cloned a working force to do their heavy labor for them. But Enki being closer to the humans is thinking, this is actually not a very happy experiment. And these human beings are not very happy, just as the other animals have a male and a female and they can procreate and they can enjoy life. The human beings really need to have that kind of experience if they're going to be happy, healthy, manageable people. And I think he had a a warmer connection with humanity because he was here and he felt humans should be upgraded. And he said to his commander, we need to upgrade them. They need to be fertile. They need to be a bit smarter. And Enlil said, we don't want them too much like us. And that part of the story is still in Genesis 3 where the God character says, we don't want them too much like us. And any Bible reader has to stop and ask who's the us. And then Enki breaks ranks and he does the upgrade anyway. And there are consequences because of that. Now, that story echoes around the world. That echoes in the story of Zeus and Prometheus, where Prometheus gets into trouble as the junior advanced being because he's made the humans a technological species. And Zeus says, that's out of order. We don't want that. And there's a huge ruckus. But the big ruckus that seems to have been recalled by cultures all around the world is when another wave of ET arrivals it's the planet's surface, because they want to hybridize with the human females, which they do. And this seems to have breached some kind of an agreement, what we might call a prime directive. And the uh, result of it is conflict that escalates to war in many of our ancient stories around the world. And the hybridization narrative, I found to my surprise as I did my research, is probably the most widely recurring theme in our ancestors' stories of paleocontact.
1: Well, I know I read uh, William Bramley's book, Gods of Eden, uh, when I first got involved in this field of exile politics research. And, And because of my background in international conflict resolution, I was fascinated by his account of ancient conflicts all being contrived by these extraterrestrials that were manipulating humanity. So in your research, you're, you're pretty much confirming that your study of a number of different scriptures and ancient texts from a different cultures confirm that, in fact, this has been happening, that we have these kind of wars by the gods where they use humans as proxies.
0: Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, that is certainly the story that emerges in the Bible. There is a body of ET demographics governing Project Earth, which we could call the Sky Council. I think it's referenced as the Heavenly Council in, in the Bible, but you have to stop and ask, what does heavenly mean? It's certainly not heavenly in terms of its behavior. It really means Sky Council. These are the sky beings and they govern over different colonies of human beings. And then they foment war. There's a moment where the prophet Micaiah in the Hebrew scriptures, remote views the sky council. And what are they doing? They're fomenting war. They're setting one human group against another to go to war. And they're using um, either mind altering technology or we're looking at energy-based beings that can influence human behavior to become more aggressive. That's what they're doing. And it's not just in the Bible that we see the gods sending their humans out to war against each other. And I think that our ancestors curated these stories because they were essentially saying, it is impossible to understand the world in which you live until you understand there's a non-human layer to the governance of Project Earth. And in my book, The Scars of Eden, I talk about how if you think about war at a human level, the wars are not truly one nation against another nation, or at least very rarely are they that. The wars seem to be between um, corporate interests that conflict, family interests that conflict at the elite level, and then nations get pulled into that. And I think there's a a very bittersweet illustration of that from the First World War, which was the Christmas truce, where on Christmas day, the working class boys of Germany felt they didn't want to kill the working class boys of Britain. And they came out of the trenches and they played a game of soccer and then they went back into the trenches to continue the war. And this reminds us that at a grassroots level, the working class boys of those different countries had no argument with each other. The argument was at a totally other level. It wasn't that one nation was pitched against another, it was more elite interests were pitched against each other. And you go back into our ancestral stories and they take that to the limit and they say, actually, the conflict is in the heavenlies, to use the old fashioned phrase. That is what is fomenting these wars and those who benefit from them are not at the bottom of the tree, they're at the very top of the tree. And it seems a difficult um, concept for people to be willing to grasp that there is a non-human layer that explains a lot of these strange, violent, anti-human behavior that we can see around the world. But as I say, we're not the first to be saying this. In fact, I was amazed in my research for Escaping from Eden to discover Robert Kirk writing in the 1600s. Now, he was a Presbyterian minister in the parish of Aberfoyle in Scotland. And anyone who knows anything about the church scene knows I've just described somebody very, very conservative. Presbyterian, Scotland, 1600s, a very conservative kind of person. But he went into his parish. And he listened with respect to what his parishioners had to tell him about their experience of life. And as he listened, he kept hearing stories of abduction, of a non-human presence in that part of the world. And as he began joining the dots, he felt he needed to write about this and share this same journey he was on. And he published a book. Well, it was published after his time called The Secret Commonwealth a book arguing that there is a non-human layer to the governance of human society that has strings to pull even to the present day, and that until you realize there's that layer there, you'll never quite understand what happens on planet Earth. So kudos to Robert Kurt for busting that taboo in such a difficult time, the 1600s, and putting that information out there But get into ancestral narratives around the world, and you'll realize that our elders and ancestors have been saying the same thing for thousands of years.
1: One of the more well-cited books that come from the biblical tradition that people refer to that describes this kind of war between the different gods and or extraterrestrials and that humanity is like the prize that they're fighting over is the Book of Enoch, and I mean, you've talked about that in your book, so you kind of walk us through, I mean, the Book of Enoch, I mean, how was it, how was it written, how was it put into kind of like, um, you know, its current position now, where it's not quite part, part of the biblical tradition, but yet it's uh, some sources like the Ethiopian church cited, included in their canon, so, you know, tell us about the Book of Enoch.
0: Well, the book of Enoch is really fascinating. It has been part of the Christian Bible from the get go in the Ethiopian tradition, as you rightly say. But outside of Ethiopia, it's always been a little to one side of the mainstream canon. And it's because some of the information in that book is rather stretching to the mainstream narrative. But curiously, I talked about the hybridization story in Genesis 6 when the writer writes Genesis 6, he does it so swiftly, he clearly assumes we already know this hybridization story. Where would we know it from? From the book of Enoch. So I reckon he assumes we've read it. And then you get to the New Testament, and the New Testament writer Jude, when he wants to reference the Old Testament character Enoch, he quotes the book of Enoch word for word. So he assumes we've all read it as well. So it might not be in the official canon for most of the church, but Old Testament and New Testament writers assume we've read it. What's interesting about it is that it's a book clearly of its time. It's written by a writer who has a certain worldview, but he's trying to process information that is really from outside his worldview. And so he is writing, about beings who he calls watchers who came and hybridized with human females in the deep past and not only hybridized with them but taught our ancestors all the rudiments of living as a civilization on planet earth taught agronomy taught sanitation health medicine clothing adornments makeup And it sounds like these watchers actually sat with humanity for quite a while as tutors. And what's interesting about that is that the stories of first contact from among cultures all around the world are of that kind of contact, not the more violent that we were just talking about, not the warmongering, not the Mars attacks, invasion of the body snatchers kind of vision at all, but ancient tutors who come and sit with our ancestors and lift us from this life of animal subsistence to being city builders, civilization builders. You can hear that in the story of Awanas and the Akkalu, which is the Babylonian version of the story. And a lovely detail in that is that the moment of first contact is really described for us because the people upon seeing these advanced visitors who are going to give this tuition Their first response is not to, oh, they were so clever. They had such amazing technology. It was, what are they wearing? Their clothing covers their whole body. And what is that textile? It's so thin and shiny. It's like a a fish's skin. And where does their clothing stop and their body start? Are they human or are they not human? And you can almost hear their thoughts as they are fingering the fabric and meeting these people for the first time. And I, I love how that's described because it suggests to me, the picture it describes is exactly what I would expect of our ancestors seeing an advanced species for the first time. Why do they look so strange is essentially what it boils down to. So we have all that in the Book of Enoch. We have him trying to understand what he's been told about the place of the planet in space. He's been given the concept of outer space. He's been given the concept of beings who who come from outer space, who may be interdimensional beings, but he's expressing it all in the language of, of his day. And so it falls within that body of literature that we call apocalyptic, which is where the writer has seen something he doesn't fully understand, and he's simply going to write it down as best he understood it as best he can describe and let the reader interpret it and we have to be very grateful to writers like that that would include writers like Ezekiel within the canonical books who did exactly the same because a couple of thousand years later three and a half thousand years later maybe we can listen to what they described and say oh I think I know what they're describing even if the translators in say the 1600s who produced the King James Bible couldn't understand because they didn't know what a rocket launch looked like or sounded like, or they didn't have a word for wormhole, or they didn't have a word for ET. So they translated it as best they could. Now we can go back to the original texts, back to the Hebrew, back to the Aramaic, back to the Greek, listen to what the people saw and say actually i think i've got a pretty good idea what they're describing and its technology and its extraterrestrial contact so
1: the the book of enoch begins with a description of these 200 fallen angels or or watches that uh, landed at mount hermon in that area of uh, syria israel palestine and that uh, they do the interbreeding with humanity, and and over time they build up or create a, a race of kind of intermediaries, the the nephilim that rule over humanity. So you know, my my question is, these these watchers uh, that that are landed there, that that are just arrive at that moment, Mount Hermon area, and just kind of like interbreed. Are, are they? kind of like extraterrestrial colonizers or are they extraterrestrial kind of like prisoners, if you like, you know, that they were dumped here? Because the Book of Enoch kind of talks about this, you know, overriding group of extraterrestrials, the, the, the righteous extraterrestrials working with Yahweh, kind of watching the watchers, the fallen angels. So uh, you, I, the question is, well, you know, did, did they arrive because they were here to colonize or because they were kind of like outcasts themselves? from some other planet that were dumped here on Earth and they were being watched to see how they they handle it all.
0: Well, if you put the story of the Watchers in Enoch alongside the ancient Sumerian stories, we find that there is a group called the Observers who were dispatched from Earth to what we call space stations to monitor our solar system and to monitor planet Earth. I think the observers and the watchers are the same group and so I think it's not a like a, a junior species, I think it's a junior rank and I think once again it's a kind of a mutiny that we're looking at. It's a breaking of rank by people who um, desperately need some shore leave and, uh, and they break orders to come down and have a life with the human beings, have a life on a planet's surface, thank you very much. And it's they who do the hybridizing. So that's how I read it. Not that it's a a separate species uh, that's that's broken the arrangement on the Sky Council. I think it's a junior ranking demographic who have uh, abrogated their orders and have come and gone native, so to speak, and are now living with the locals and uh, interbreeding that's the picture that emerges when you read Enoch alongside this Sumerian story and of course that that going native so to speak and interbreeding that does repeat in other cultures you find it in the Greek narratives and the Norse narratives for instance so I that's how I read that.
1: So Enoch is taken off planet and the conventional reading is that while well, he's taken to these different heavens, and he sees demons, and he sees evolved angels, and he sees and eventually has face to face encounter with God. Now, do I mean you ref, referenced a few times the Sky Council, and and I think I would support that that in fact Enoch was taken off planet, and he actually was taken to these different whether they're worlds or bases on moons or councils around Jupiter or Saturn, that he was exposed to some extraterrestrial bases on different off-planet locations relative to the Earth and introduced to a hierarchy of beings.
0: Yes, I think that is right, and he does describe that, and, and he does his best to describe that. And he's not the only person in the Bible to have this off-planet experience. The Apostle Paul, I believe, reports a very similar experience in the New Testament where he says he was taken. And then he says, I'm not sure if I was in my body or out of my body, which means he feels he may have been in an altered state. He may have been remote viewing or he may have been physically in space. And what he describes is a command center. Again, it's one of those moments where we've got language now they didn't have in the past. And so he really does seem to be describing a a captain's chair and then the officers who do what the captain say on the bridge of some craft. But as it gets translated, it gets translated in language that sounds more religious. So we have uh, the king on his throne and then the archangels who do the will of the king on the throne and it all morphs into much more religious language and we can see the same in Enoch so I share your view Michael that he is actually going to space bases off planet he's seeing how they operate he's getting some idea of space and of our planet in space But then when he comes back and writes about it, he doesn't write about it in the way we would because he doesn't understand planets, solar systems, so on and so forth. And so there is um, some distortion of the description when he comes back. But it's clear enough that you and I can read it and say, he's describing a, a close encounter. This is a close encounter of the fifth kind. And it's not the only one. In the annals of ancient world mythology.
1: Enoch was the great-grandfather of Noah and of course we all know about Noah and the, and the flood and the ark and so forth. So my question is did the flood take place at the end of the Younger Dryas period, which is around 9,600 BC, which which, cor- which corresponds with uh, Plato's account of the destruction of Atlantis. So, yes. so this whole kind of scenario of of Enoch being taken off planet, the war between the gods, the proxy proxy war involving humans being influenced by different extraterrestrial groups, and, and then it all kind of like ends in this catastrophic great flood. Are, are they... In the Book of Enoch, are they describing or is it describing the same great flood that led to the uh, destruction of Atlantis 9600 BC that Plato also referred to? Or are we talking about a different event?
0: Uh, my short answer to that question would be yes. I actually think that many of the world's creation narratives, what we think are creation stories, are actually stories about planetary recovery in the aftermath of the Younger Dryas. And there would have been major flood events at the beginning and end of the Younger Dryas cold period. So in the Bible, for instance, the story begins on a planet that is flooded and devastated. The Hebrew phrase is tohu wa bohu. It's devastated in a state of chaos, But it already exists. And so before we get to the familiar creation story of let there be light and there was light and the sun and the moon and stars appear, the planet is already there in the story, but it's flooded and shrouded in darkness. That's how the planet is in the Sumerian story when the powerful beings arrive and start terraforming. It's how it is in the Filipino story. It's how it is in the Edo story from Nigeria. It's how it is in the Mesoamerican stories. It always starts on a flooded planet. And I think that much of what is in our flood narratives dates from about 10,000 years ago, which is an interesting sort of date because for a couple of reasons, if we go to the top of the Fertile Crescent to Karakadag, in 1998, a team went there from the Max Planck Institute uh, and the University of Az in Norway, headed up by Manfred Hoing, and they identified what they believe to be the first farm on planet earth, the place where animal husbandry was discovered and where 11 naturally occurring plants were genetically modified to become cultivatable crops. This is where our civilization begins, they say, about 10,000 years ago. So interesting date, as we're recovering from the Younger Dryas, except go 800 miles down the road and you've got Gebekli Tepe, which is a megalithic culture that has produced that structure. So that's a culture prior to the first farm, question mark. And then you can go around the world and you can find megalithic remains, other megalithic remains that are underwater now that would have been above water no more recently than 10,000 years ago. So I think, yes, there was a massive pivot in the story of the planet and the story of humanity at that time. I think that is our most recent upgrade 10,000 years ago. Cultures around the world have remembered it. But I think it's not the only cataclysm that is recalled in our ancient stories. And I argue in Escaping from Eden that by the time you get to Genesis chapter 11, you've probably read about five Planetary resets. Plato, who timed the end of the Atlantean civilization to around that same time, 10,000 years ago, argued that every few thousand years, civilization on Earth is taken down to a virtual zero by a cataclysmic event, triggered, he believed, by the movement of objects through space. And of course, I mean, that could be the. impact of uh, an asteroid. It could be the arrival of a moon, which is part of our world stories as well. Could be other space objects impacting us. Today, we have other theories as to why there are these major cycles on planet Earth to do with solar activity. But Plato was there two and a half thousand years ago saying there have been a number of resets and a number of reboots of civilization. And I do think there are fragments of memory that go much further back than 10,000 years ago to previous cataclysms, previous interventions, previous experiences of Homo sapiens, and maybe previous experiences of civilizations even prior to Homo sapiens.
1: Now, in Escaping from Eden, you, you describe an event around the 6th century BC where there was a deliberate attempt to hide The texts that describe these polytheistic uh, teachings or records about a multiplicity of gods or extraterrestrials intervening uh, with humanity and and to kind of like hide all of that and come up with a kind of uniform monotheistic faith, which I I believe would be, um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, would that be the beginning of the Talmud or the Septuagint?
0: Well, what happened uh, in the 6th century BC, and there's a very broad scholarly consensus about this, is that the canon of literature that we now call the Hebrew canon, the Old Testament, was edited. It was all in place. It had all been compiled. But up until that point, it included stories that made very clear that we had company in the deep past, that there were many advanced beings governing over humanity. And in the 6th century BCE, the powers that were wanted to rework the Hebrew scriptures so that it would teach monotheism, so that it would give the appearance of being a seamless story of God, the Almighty, the source of the cosmos from beginning to end. And so they took their holy name for God and they pasted it over these earlier stories They added it to the Elohim stories. They translated Elohim as God rather than powerful ones. And they put the holy name Yahweh into the texts. And for the most part, it sort of works. It sort of works as a story of God, except there are many moments when the shape of the earlier stories remains, where God goes to war against himself, where almighty God is threatened by some local false god or landlord. And it it seems ridiculous. Or you get to the Ten Commandments and it begins by a command that we should forget about the other powerful ones and not work for them. Don't bow down to them and you're not even allowed to draw pictures of them. So a great forgetting is being commanded, even in the Ten Commandments. That's still there as a little clue that there are many advanced beings washing around in the story. And then you go to the time after Moses, when Joshua succeeds him, and he says to the people, don't serve Achech, the dragon of Egypt, serve Yahweh, the powerful one of Israel. And there's this counterpart, don't serve these powerful ones in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, in the land where you live, serve only Yahweh, an acknowledgement that there's this multiplicity of beings. So there are these moments where the, the whitewash is not quite thick enough to obscure the earlier stories, but that was the attempt, because they wanted to teach monotheism. And I don't want to um, rubbish the intention, because the idea that we should not be running around worshipping entities that we think are more advanced than we are and giving our power away and living subservient is a good message. We should not be doing that. But it really did obscure the henotheistic roots of Judaism, and it really did try to airbrush out all the Hebrew recollection of paleo contact. And I think it was very damaging because it distorted our idea of God. When you turn the story of colonization by powerful ET factions into a story of God, all of a sudden it's God doing the violence. It's God doing the genocides. It's God prosecuting the wars. It's God threatening human beings that he will punish their families for seven generations for a state they might make. It's God who can turn on a dime and punish you when you're actually trying just to serve him. And it creates a God who's a monster. And if you have a God who does genocide, you have to justify that genocide. If you have to worship a being that will do inhumane things, you have to justify inhumane things and I think you can draw a straight line from that translation choice that made these God stories to all kinds of abuses through history. We have colonized, we've enslaved, we've brutalized in the name of God because we think God is like that and in truth it was not God colonizing the planet, it was extraterrestrial factions, some of whom were quite anti-human or indifferent to human beings If we don't disentangle that picture, then we continue to be a species that's tiptoeing around for fear of offending the almighty. And I liken it to living in a household where a parent has mental health problems or substance abuse problems, and the self-confidence of everyone else in that household goes to zero because they just have to avoid offending the dangerous parent. And I think we've lived like that as a species because of this horrible, distorted vision of God that we've had that all comes from a misunderstanding of our deep past.
1: Well, I know the subtitle of your book, Scars of Eden, is very provocative in that regard. Humanity has confused the idea of of God with memories of ET contact. And so you're you're clearly wanting to separate uh, belief or faith In an absolute benevolent being that somehow played a role in the creation of life on Earth with the intervention of these different extraterrestrial races that were taking part on the in these genetic experiments on Earth involving upgrading humans from possibly primates. So, how, how would you kind of like reconcile that? How would you like explain to a traditionalist? that the, the Bible, even though it's confused or some, some confuse the idea of God with uh, ET contact, that, that God is still there. So how would you kind of yeah. unpack him from all of that?
0: Sure. Well, I think if you're reading the Hebrew Scriptures as a Christian, then I would say your start point needs to be Jesus. Look at Jesus, read his teachings. What is his vision of God? And his vision of God is of uh, a loving father. He calls the source when he prays Father. And then ask the question, is the behavior attributed to the God character in the Hebrew scriptures, anything like the God that Jesus portrays? And the answer is no. There's a great discontinuity. There is an incompatibility between the moral behavior attributed to God in the Hebrew scriptures And how Jesus describes God. So that can be a start point for a Christian believer who then says, well how do we read those stories then? And the church was open about that discussion from the very beginning. Uh, Really key church fathers like Origen, Clement of Alexandria, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Marcion, right at the beginning they were saying you cannot read those stories in the Hebrew canon at face value as God's stories, because if we did, we would have to believe of God, and this was Origen's phrase, such things as we would not believe of the most savage and unjust of men. And so he, he had a way of saying, you can't take them at face value. The Elohim stories are not God's stories, and so let's find a way of handling these stories that is not a fundamentalist reading. So that can be a Christian start point. A Christian preacher, certainly knows there are stories that claim to be God's stories that cannot possibly be. So that's one angle. Uh, Another angle is to realize that Christianity was really built on Greek thought, that the thought world, what everybody knew about life, the universe, and everything, the thought world into which Jesus emerged and those who wrote for Jesus, was a worldview that is best unpacked by Plato. Plato believed in God, uh, but he had a very cosmic way of of talking about God. He, If I can tie this in with Einstein for a moment, Einstein's theory of relativity demonstrated mathematically that there was a start point to space, energy, matter, and time, the same start point. Now this is mind-boggling to say time had a beginning, But what he was saying is that if you go far enough back, then you reach a point where, we always want to ask what was before? What was the universe like this before it was like it is now? Go far enough back and you reach a point where before doesn't mean before anymore, because that's where time begins. And when you reach the point where before doesn't mean before anymore, you're looking at a unified field of consciousness. Plato argued that consciousness preceded the material universe. And that was really his God concept, that this unified field of consciousness and intelligence fractalized to form the material universe. It's just as mind-stretching as any other definition of God, but I rather like his definition of God. And he says that everything in the universe is an emanation of God. So he has a God concept, And then he says the universe develops, life develops in the universe as as a part of that fractalization. We would call that panspermia today. The idea that the genetic coding for biological conscious intelligent life is part of the properties of the cosmos. That whenever that coding lands in an hospitable environment, it generates forms of life similar to the ones we're familiar with. And so you have a populated universe. This is Plato's view. And then some of those who are more developed come and visit those who are less developed. And that's when these interventions and these tweakings happen. So Plato held the two things together, a God concept and an ET concept of beings coming and modifying the life that's evolving on planet Earth. Now, those church fathers I mentioned thought Plato was the bee's knees and they felt he'd accurately described the beginning of things. And they saw that as being in no way in conflict with a proper reading of the Elohim stories of the Hebrew scriptures. They went to the Hebrew scriptures and said, yes, we're reading about some of these visitations here. But their interpretation, unfortunately, well, it didn't win all the debates in the early church. And so the picture of a populated universe was pushed out. The recollection of many advanced beings in the Hebrew scriptures was pushed out anathematized, turned into heresy. And those Christian documents that were more open to those ideas were suppressed to the point that the Gnostic texts were literally buried in the desert in order to prevent them from being burned and destroyed because they were so out of favor. So there was a very deliberate act of forgetting at the beginning of Christian history that really pared down our worldview that got rid of so many stories and simplified everything to the point where there's one god at the top of the pyramid alongside the emperor and then the bishops and senators in the middle and then the priests and people at the bottom meekly paying praying and obeying and we don't need a more complex universe than that to run the empire thank you very much and i think it was for those kind of political reasons that we had the paring down of the hebrew scriptures which empowered the. high priestly families of Judaism and the paring down of Christianity under the Roman Empire which really empowered the emperor and those he commanded and all these more interesting themes were forgotten.
1: Well clearly that's what happened to the book and thankfully the Ethiopian church kind of kept that as a part of their canon and you also uh, discuss another book that was kept by the Ethiopians called Bell and the Dragon. So what does the dragon represent? In in that biblical account that has been kind of repressed uh, through these various kind of uh, conclaves in the Hebrew tradition and Christian tradition to exclude some of the more controversial material discussing these uh, non human beings that are interacting with us?
0: Yes. Well, this is something I talk about in my book, Echoes of Eden, because some of the Yahweh stories in the Hebrew scriptures are very puzzling to a modern reader. When some of the Yahweh stories start referencing the length of Yahweh's snout and his scaly skin and his flight feathers and his tail and the fiery destruction that should ensue if you ever offend him, and the fact that he needs prodigious volumes of beef, virgin girls, and gold. Now, anyone who is just hearing those elements and and doesn't know anything about Yahweh stories would say, didn't you just describe a dragon? Uh, And the answer is yes, that some of the Yahweh stories of the Hebrew canon fit perfectly within the world's canon of dragon narratives describe very similar entities governing over human societies in the deep past. And there's a strange phonetic connection among the names of some of these draconian entities. So I mentioned before, Achech is the dragon of Egypt. The Colchis is the dragon of Georgia. In uh, Japan, you've got the Icuchu and the Kuchedra. You've got the coca in Spain and Portugal. In Mesoamerica, you've got Kukulkan, Kukumats, Quetzalcoatl. And you'll notice there's this phonetic similarity. K is the sound that represents all these Dracodian entities. Now, someone might say, ah, not in Wales. The Welsh dragon's different. That's the griffin. The griffin is always red. And to say the word for red in Welsh, you need a k. So the sounds even there, it's the exception that proves the rule. Come back to the name Yahweh, it might sound a million miles from these draconian entities memorialized by the same sound. But that's because the way we write the holy name, -Y 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 Y H. WH. We put vowels in to make it pronounceable, and the H's almost disappear. Yahweh. You go, and this is my thing going back to the roots. Go to Proto-Northwest Semitic. H H is pronounced. Kh-h. And all of a sudden you realize that speech of Joshua in Joshua 24 is a little bit more poetic. Don't serve Ahekh, the dragon of Egypt. Serve Yahweh. The dragon of us, and they are clearly counterpart entities. It's a dragon in Egypt, so what's the Yahweh character that Joshua is talking about? Now some people, like this is where Balin the dragon comes in, so I'm getting back to your question, some people might say ah well look the dragon narratives of all these other cultures may be one thing, but all the dragon references in the Hebrew scriptures are purely poetic well, Bell and the Dragon gives the lie to that, because Bell and the Dragon is a story that you could find in the Septuagint. That's the longer canon than the Hebrew canon, the Greek translation. And you get to Bell and the Dragon, and they are mocking their neighbors because they have all the accoutrements of dragon worship. They've got the tent uh, where the deep, dark corner that smoke emerges from. And they're supplying beef, virgin girls and gold to the dragon in the tent, but the joke in Bell and the Dragon is, our neighbors are just pretending because our Prince Daniel killed their dragon. What they're doing is the priests are eating that beef. The priests are enjoying the services of the Virgin Girls. It's all a sham. They don't really have a dragon. We do. That's the punchline, that their neighbors are pretending they've got a dragon, whereas we really do. And his name is So that firmly sets the dragon stories of the Hebrew canon in the context of the world's dragon stories. And the is really the, uh, the smoking gun that ties it all together. Again, memories of a traumatic period in human history when those who governed us had no empathy with us because they weren't human and many of the world's dragon stories are a story of social development that humanity reaches the point of saying we don't want to live like this anymore we don't want just to be the servant class of another species if we all say no then they can't use us what are they going to do kill us all that's not going to help them we won't have any servants then might kill some of us But if we all band together and say, no, we're not going to serve you anymore, that's the end of their power. And that's the shape of many dragon narratives around the world. And that's the shape of the dragon narrative in the Hebrew canon, where it reaches the point where the people say to, we don't want you anymore. We want a human king. And so Saul comes in as the first human king. You translate that as a God story. It doesn't make any sense at all. Why would you trade? almighty god looking after you for a human king realize you're reading a dragon story and it absolutely fits the pattern
1: i guess that would apply across many different traditions or religious traditions where people mistakenly are worshiping these dragons whether you call him yahweh or give him some other name that it's actually a, a, a draco or reptilian as opposed to worshiping a a truly transcendent god or um, benevolent being a la plato or a la jesus
0: yes that's right and that translation that we mentioned in the sixth century bce makes it confusing deliberately makes it confusing because by the end of the hebrew canon you do have texts that are using the name yahweh to describe that transcendent vision of god the source of all things the source of the cosmos and everything in it and so it's confusing you've got some texts where the name means that and other texts where it means this non-human draconian entity that has no empathy whatsoever with the human race
1: now i know in your most recent book, Echoes of Eden, that just came out this year. I mean, you spend a little bit of time looking at the interest of the military intelligence community in these ancient traditions and myths surrounding ex- ex- extraterrestrial contact. So so why is the military intelligence community interested in what ancient Hebrew and Christian scriptures have to say about you know, these, these gods or these angels? that may in fact be extraterrestrials?
0: Well, that's a very good question. I think in the recent uh, Senate briefings and congressional hearings that have been going on, the conversation about populated universe has really been framed uh, with the idea of military threat. Are we in company? Do they represent a security threat? And how do we manage it? So even in the very flimsy nine page paper that was presented to the Senate last year, that was the framing. Is this a security threat that we need to manage? And they would simply want as much information about that as they possibly can get. And so they will, they will have ancient documents they're interested in, which they clearly are. They'll be reading books like um, Adam and Eve by Chan Thomas as the CIA was reading. Uh, 30 years ago, they're just wanting to get as full a picture as possible. But there's another element to these stories as well, because as I've gone around the world, listening to ancestral narrative, the themes of paleocontact are, are everywhere, but they interweave with themes of human potential, what human beings are, what we're capable of, what higher cognitive abilities we have when we are maximally healthy and uh, operating as we really should. And I think uh, any government wants to be able to manage its population. And so if there's information about us and how we can be managed, they'll want that information. And there is that kind of storyline there. If you go to the Ethic people, they have a story of Abbasi and Atai engineering Homo sapiens and then realizing they've made a species that's unmanageable because we're too advanced and too clever. And they have to work out how to dumb us down to a point where they can manage us. That echoes in the Mesoamerican stories as well. And uh, it may be for um, very commendable reasons or it might be for more practical, how do we manage human society reasons that our governments are interested in these ancient texts.
1: One of the things that I recently came across was um, information from a discovery an alleged discovery in Chaco Canyon, um, New Mexico, called the Wingmakers material, and it involved uh, the uh, National Security Agency getting control over the the discovered 23 chambers filled with art, philosophical texts, music and so forth that was translated. And and apparently all of this information talks about this human potential that your your Echoes of Eden is discussing. And and it it was designed to try and unleash this. And apparently the NSA created a, a group called the Advanced Contact Intelligence Organization to take control of all of this because they want to kind of like harness these abilities rather than like have humanity yes. develop them. Um, of course. Yeah. So, so, my question is well, one of the abilities that they talk about, you know, the Wingman's the material talks about us having seven senses. You know, of course, there's the sixth sense of intuition, but there's also a seventh sense of being able to navigate space time that apparently we have within us this ability. To just kind of move through space time, just through con- the power of consciousness alone. So yeah. So what what does your research tell you about such an ability or other abilities that, again, may be highly prized by the intelligence community?
0: Yes. Yes. Of course. Um, if uh, if anyone watching has watched Star Trek: Discovery, they'll be familiar with the idea of the consciousness drive, where the pilot is sort of wired into the ship and then it's the mind of the pilot that translocates the ship to another quadrant of the galaxy Uh, and it's very nicely dramatized in Star Trek Uh, but it is an ancient idea and it's also something that's been discussed by the Pentagon because of engagement with UAPs or UFOs in the present day Uh, If you listen to the pilots reporting the experience of engaging with the Tic Tac craft in 2004, you will realize that part of the challenge, if we're going to try and control our airspace, is that our visitors appear to ping into our part of space. They do it that way, of course, now in Star Trek and Star Wars. You don't travel slowly through space until you get to the next planet, you ping into this part of the universe and so there's a sense of trans-dimensional travel and the pilots talked about the tic-tac craft moving as if they were creatures rather than craft with a pilot at the wheel and again this hints at the mind of the pilot and the ship uh, being absolutely blended. Um, So there is an experiential aspect to consciousness as a driving mechanism. Go to Aboriginal Australian culture and you will hear stories of translocation that are exactly the same. Translocation through space, but somehow not through space because you ping from here to there. And I talk about an Aboriginal Australian elder, very revered elder by the name of Kano, who could not only do this, but would do this in front of people so that they could see that he could do it. He called it going behind the curtain and he would refer to it very uh, offhandedly as a party trick. But then he said this, there was a time when we could all do this. And so the documents that you're talking about, Michael, are, are from a culture that clearly believe we could all do this. And you're quite right. I think, you know, we live in a world where movement of human beings is controlled. We have nations, we have borders, we have passports. The idea that the population of the world can just ping around uh, as they might wish, well, how on earth can you manage that? How do you manage a country if people can do that? How do you control crime if people can do that? Uh, These are the kinds of questions that people in government would be asking. And of course, they wouldn't say, oh, look, we've found the way to do this. Let's put this in brochures and hand these out to the general public. I think it would follow exactly the same path that we saw with remote viewing, where for 30, 25 years, the CIA had a remote viewing department, clearly fully believing it was possible, but it's for the powers to have that information and for the general public to believe it's impossible or is ridiculous or has been debunked. It parallels what happened at the foundation of the British Secret Service uh, under the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. The first thing she wanted to develop was a remote viewing department so that the powers could do it. Meanwhile, if a member of the public does it, they're gonna get burned as a witch. So it really is the same pattern that advanced human technologies are for the powers to know about and for the rest of us to think is fiction or is ridiculous. And I think that's the story we're looking at today.
1: Well, that's a very important point. And I guess I just want to emphasize that in the Echoes of Eden, that you're focusing on recognizing these human potentials that are described in the ancient Biblical traditions and their relevance today in terms of the intelligence community wanting to harness those. And so that, that that takes me to the to what you just mentioned: that traditionally that the powers that be have prescribed trying to activate these potentials, but secretly harness them for their own benefit. So, you know, those that maybe come from a traditional Christian, Hebrew or Muslim tradition where they associate these potentials with witchcraft, sorcery, the jinn, and so forth? You know, are they just kind of like buying into the programming uh, by those powers that are kind of like using us as proxies in their wars and, and they don't want us to figure it out by accessing these human potentials?
0: Yes, I think they are. I mean, there is remote viewing, for instance, in the Bible. I mentioned Micaiah, the prophet, remote viewing the Sky Council. There's a moment in the Gospels where Jesus remote views one of the twelve. And by showing he's remote viewed him, that's how he impresses him and gets him into the gang, so to speak. So remote viewing is there. It's not just some, you know, nefarious, uh, dark, demonic thing at all. It is a part of the human experience in the Bible and I would want to emphasize this is human abilities. This is natural cognitive abilities. If we go to the Mesoamerican story from out of the Mayan tradition, um, I, I like how descriptive they are about what this means. Those stories say that there was a time when our ancestors had a vision that was not limited in the way ours is when the genetic engineers in the Mayan story wanted to dumb the humans down, they talk about it in terms of limiting our vision and they spray a vapor over human populations that will brain damage us to the point where we can no longer access our higher cognitive abilities. So how is our vision limited? Well, if you think about it, our vision is limited by distance. We can't see beyond the horizon. We can't see into deep space. Our vision is limited by surface. We can't see into things, through things, or behind things. It's limited by time. We can only see the present. We can't see the past. We can't see the future. It's limited by spectrum. We can see this spectrum of frequencies, whereas a dog can see this, a cat can see this, so on and so forth. Take those limits away. Now you can see into deep space, you've got remote viewing, you can remote view the rings of Jupiter as Ingo Swan did in 1973. You can see into things, you've got X-ray vision with all the implications for self-healing. You can see the future, you've got precognition. Um, these are the abilities that the mindset our ancestors had. And that culture, along with many, has always curated mystical and shamanic abilities for switching those back on. They believe that we can all, if we're maximally healthy, can operate at that level where we can future view and remote view and have X-ray vision and have better telepathic connection. And it is part of African shamanic tradition, Mesoamerican shamanic tradition, go to Europe, you'll find the same thing. It is that folkloric level that has maintained the protocols to improve our cognitive performance. And it might give a hint as to why throughout history, governing powers or colonizing powers have always sought to extinguish indigenous traditions, indigenous information, put a stop to indigenous initiation because again, they don't want these human technologies in the general population, they want it for the powers. It explains why for 100 years in Canada, the USA and Australia, we had stolen generation policies designed to prevent indigenous initiation, getting rid of the information those traditions carried and any higher cognitive abilities they knew how to switch on and it's part of the same picture we were just describing one set of information and power for the powers and something far less for the rest of us
1: so where do people go to find out more about your your research to buy your books to find out about upcoming um, projects and events
0: sure where you can find my books at Amazon, Kindle, Barnes and Noble, wherever books are sold, you'll find Escaping from Eden, The Scars of Eden, Echoes of Eden. If you'd like to get into conversation with me, you can find me on The Fifth Kind on YouTube, or the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube. I'm in the comments every day. And if you'd like a longer conversation, you can find me at my website, which is paulantonywallace.com com Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S or AnthonyWallace.com and I'll be very happy to get into conversation with you.
1: Well, I want to thank you, Paul, for your research. I think it's really remarkable work uh, in terms of uh, unpacking what is hidden within the different uh, scriptures, Hebrew, the Christian and other world religions and traditions. I think uh, what you're doing is marvelous in, in bringing out that that ancient body of literature and how it applies to contemporary events today so I, I definitely recommend people go out and get your book series and i believe there's going to be a book for coming soon
0: oh there certainly is i'm already working on it i don't have a title as yet but it will uh, continue in the eden vein
1: fantastic well i look forward to reading that so thank you
0: paul Thank you, Michael.
1: You have been listening to ExoPolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit ExopoliticsToday.com.